Welcome to the Wellness Hustle Podcast. I'm Kirsty Taylor, your host, a writer, a storyteller, and a wanderer of life. I struggled so much in the past, and it wasn't until I started to focus on myself that I saw true change and really started living my life. This podcast is aimed to help you realize that this whole work hard, play hard mantra bullshit has not been cutting it. We need to focus on what truly matters. Think of this podcast as a tool for finally hustling for yourself. So let's shift our focus from the external to the internal because in the end, you deserve it. Bonjour, welcome. It is another episode of the Wellness Hustle podcast. I'm so excited to have you guys here. I've been I've been really thinking about the future of this podcast and a lot of people keep asking me if I want to make it into a full-time career and all of that and of course I want to. I love doing this. So, I've been putting in a little bit more work and hopefully I'm going to have some really awesome guests for you guys soon and maybe even bump this up to a bi-weekly podcast. Uh, We shall see. In the meantime, this week's episode is going to be about eating disorders. And I know a lot of my podcasts lately have been very disordered eating, body image related, or the subjects brought up, but guys, it is so prevalent in our society. It's ridiculous. First off, Every 62 minutes, one person dies from complications directly due to an eating disorder. And it's such a prevalent issue that people don't want to talk about, which is not okay. The stigma that's held with eating disorders as being this taboo subject is, it's mind-blowing seeing as so many people are actually affected by it. And yeah, I don't know why we don't talk about it more. I think that should change, and I hope to help be a change in that. And people like who I interviewed this week, Lindsay Hall, hope to be a change in that as well. And so she is a eating disorder writer and an eating disorder activist. I've been following her for almost a year now, and her writing is really beautiful. It's very raw. It's very honest, and we definitely need more of that in the community. So yeah, we talk a lot about our experiences with eating disorders, our insight on how having one kind of helped us realize that missing out on our lives for so many years because we were consumed by this disease made us not want to take for granted the time that we do have left on this planet. It's a great talk. Lindsay's awesome. It's very chill. She's a cool girl and I'm excited for you guys to hear it. So yeah, let's get going. Thank you for being on here and welcome to the Wellness Hustle podcast. I'm here with Lindsay Hall and she is in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. Very jealous. (laughs) I can, like, Thank see you. out the back of your window. Like, that, just <laughs> that tree looks beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a little magical up here. Unfortunately, we, we live in a house, and um, and they're going to knock down this house after our year here is done. So I'm trying to, uh, I know, it's such a bummer. So I'm trying to uh, really live it up while we have it out here in the mountains. And then we're going to, like, probably move a little bit closer to the city. I'm not really sure. The city is in, like, Boulder or Denver? Yeah, Boulder. Oh, Boulder, Boulder. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, sounds nice, though, regardless, the mountains. Oh. Mm-hmm. So how about you give us a little bit of info about yourself and what you do and how you got into writing about eating disorders and recovery and all, all of that? Cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you actually also know that it's National Eating Disorder Awareness Week this week? 
I'm gonna say yes, but no, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say like, I, I should it know be, that. No, it'd be good. It'd be good for your, like the intro part of this. I don't know if y'all actually. Yeah, have that's a really good point. Stuff, no, no. But, okay, cool, but, guys. It's the it's National Eating Disorder Week. I see a lot of um, a lot of people that I follow on Instagram are talking a lot about the walks and everything now. Um, I mean, I know they don't all happen this week, but I I assumed it was at some point. Yeah, it was this in, week. Yeah, like February. Yeah. So, so I tell you, but um, so it's also it's obviously a really good time that we are connecting today. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, my name is Lindsay, and I am a blogger and a speaker on the subject of eating disorders. Uh, I run a blog that I started about four and a half years ago called <laughs> I Haven't Shaved in Six Weeks dot com. And it it never gets old saying that out loud uh, and to other people. But I started this blog after about an eight year battle with um, what I like to call the eating disorder cycle, um, because I don't really I think it's very rare that one person struggles with just one eating disorder, even though the media and kind of the stigma surrounding eating disorders is that, you know, you're either anorexic or you're bulimic or you're Jeter, but really, I think when you've lived with it for as long as someone like me did personally, you live in the whole cycle. Um, So uh, I struggled with it for about eight years. And when I was 24, I ended up going to a treatment center um, in Florida. Finally, Uh, I needed it and I definitely was ready to go. I just didn't know how to ask for help at the time. But when I agreed to go, you know, obviously I did what most people would do. I didn't know anything about treatment centers. Um, I definitely didn't know what I was getting myself into. And so I Googled the Internet um, about a thousand times over looking for any kind of like personal narrative that was telling me what was rehab going to be like. I mean, was I going to be in there with like crazy people? What were they going to feed me? What was life like? And I couldn't really find anything. All I could find was kind of like clinical blog posts and like very boring inspirational quotes. <laughs> and like, and to me, that just wasn't that wasn't enough for me. I felt really nervous going in and very unprepared for what I was going to experience. So I promised myself that when I got out, no matter what, that I would write about it. And that at least if for nothing to explain to the people in my life what had gone on while I was in there and what it was like. Right. So I got out and started this blog, the I Haven't Shaved in Six Weeks blog, um, because one of the things I thought people should know is that, for at least for me, I wasn't allowed to shave for the six weeks that I was in residential um, inpatient. Right, because of the blades uh, on the razor. Right, because of blades. And I guess I could have thought of that, but at the time I just didn't, you know, I had... Little things you don't think of. Yeah. Right, right. And so I was like, oh, wow. And so when they took my razor blade from me, I was like, oh, okay, so I'm just I'm just going to, okay, I'm going to be free, <laughs> free-flowing. Um, that's, exactly. That's great. Uh, so that's how the blog started, and I was just really lucky. It kind of started as this series of short stories about being in treatment. Um, of course, rehab was quite different than I thought it would be. I, I met wonderful women in there at all ages, whether it was right. 11 years old up to like 60. And I cherish them all still dearly. Um, some of them have made it, some of them haven't. And I started writing about the whole thing. And then from that, yeah, the last four years, I've just been, I've been really lucky with some of the opportunities that have come my yeah. way. Um, I speak now. I'm speaking at the Nita Dallas walk actually in April oh, which cool. is exciting. yeah and so I uh yeah. and write for different publications and do a lot of interviews and get to meet people like you yeah yeah exactly wow that's awesome you say that you wrote the blog to um be able to help people going into the recovery process and everything so have people reached out to you yeah 
you know, it really started as a social media thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I started this blog literally just to have these like nine short stories and I put it on my Facebook just kind of being like, Hey, I'm sick of lying about my shit basically. And like, this is where I've been. This is what I'm dealing with. I love you all. Thanks for all the support. I'm, I'm getting better. I'm going to be better. Um, but Here's where I've been. And so from that, it just was like this outpouring of social media from people that I never would have guessed. But it was like women I went to college with, like friends that I had met in Europe that all came out being like, oh, hey, um, I had an eating disorder. My sister had an eating disorder. My brother had an eating disorder. My mother has an eating disorder, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I started realizing how absolutely prevalent eating disorders are in this country. Yeah. And so from there, I just kind of kept writing. Um, right. I didn't know where I was going with it nor what I would do. But after about a year, I ended up doing some media stuff like I was on the Today Show and, and stuff like that. And so from oh. there, it just kind of took my blog to a different level. And so, yeah, no, I would say about every single day I get emails from yeah. people asking That's about amazing. Yeah, it's great. It's a little overwhelming sometimes. Uh, so, yeah. Of course, I haven't tried. I haven't quite figured out like work-life balance. <laughs> yeah. Trying to um, answer emails and also manage my own time and give myself exactly. some space to like not always feel like I need to be responding and need to be like, you know, on social media or on my blog, etc. But yeah, it's it's been a really big blessing. I, I think it's what's kept me in recovery. Yeah, what? that's beautiful. Why do you think it is that people don't talk about this kind of stuff like eating disorders and all that I think it really comes personally from this incredible this incredible stigma that we still have around eating disorders I think that you know when eating disorders started really being talked about in the media if you really think about it besides Karen Carpenter in the 80s who died from anorexia and she was uh, she was that singer but it was really the Mary Kate Ashley Olsen time period, so the early 2000s, Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie. Uh, that's when anorexia started becoming this like national tabloid thing of of being of being talked about, and they, you know, they were emaciated, and that was kind of the image that everyone started to get in their head of what mm-hmm. of what anorexia looked like. Um, not to mention we still had you know Barbies, we still had dolls that looked emaciated and that didn't fit like their proportions of what a human would actually ever be able to look like. And so I think that there, I think that people got this idea that if they didn't look that way, um, and I still, I I still think it reigns true even now, but Mm -hmm. I think if people think that they don't look a certain way, if they're not absolutely emaciated, then they don't deserve help or that they're not sick enough. Um, I've talked a lot about this whole, like not sick enough cognition, but I think that for me, that was what kept me in my sickness for about eight years is feeling like I was never quite sick enough to deserve that help. Right. And I feel like that probably reigns true for a lot of women. Like we have this idea that anorexia is this very, very, actually any eating disorder is like you're thin on the brink of death type of thing. And that's definitely true for some people. And that definitely happens. But that doesn't mean that if you're not at a level, not if you're not there yet, you don't deserve help. Exactly. I mean, yeah, eating, it's like disordered eating, eating disorder, like we should never have a bad relationship with food and it just takes up your mental space, your mind, your sanity. And it's so prevalent. People don't talk about it and it blows my mind. It blows my mind. I remember the first time I posted on my Instagram about my experience with an eating disorder, how many people came or how many people like DM me and talked about it. And I was just like, whoa, like I had no idea you were going through this too. And like, 
when I was in the depths of it, I felt like, I don't know, like I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. Like I didn't know what was even going on. No one's not, no one talked about it. Right. Uh, Well, there's this woman, I I can't remember the author's name right now, but she wrote a book. Does everybody have an eating disorder or like, does every woman have an eating disorder? And I often say that out loud to myself sometimes because it does feel like we've, especially with our diet culture and our beauty standards in this, in this country, especially we've really, and in all really English speaking first world countries have this issue I've noticed, but it's very prevalent in Australia and England as well in Ireland. Um, but it, it, I think that we're all almost, we're almost numb to it. Like mm-hmm. I felt like most of my friends had disordered eating techniques. Um, we right. all restricted at one point. I remember being in college, you know, I talk about drunkorexia a lot about mixing alcohol with eating disorders and how we would drink alcohol in place of food. And that was a common thing. We called it the liquid diet. And so it's like when you're around people that aren't calling out the behaviors that you're using and it becomes a norm, it becomes a social norm. Mm -hmm. How do you know that it's an eating disorder? Right. And that's kind of, that's where I really fell into for about four years of just thinking that like I was really quote dedicated to my workouts. Um, and that I was just doing what every college kid does. And that's, that's dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous thought patterns. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I read a an article somewhere about researchers bringing in media to like a tribe out in Africa or something. And they started seeing like what we watch here in America, like TV shows and whatnot. Then they studied them before and studied them after and how they felt about their body image versus after. And just that impact of having the TV and media for like a month changed how they viewed their bodies and how they felt about themselves. That's fascinating. So it's what you said about like the first world countries and everything like that's, it's the media, you know, it's all the, the images we're constantly getting thrown at us and these ideas of beauty and stuff. Yeah, I'd love to see that study. That's really, that's quite interesting. I'm not oh, surprised. Yeah. I'll but... definitely send that to you. Yeah, for sure. It's quite interesting. So what, when you brought up this idea that we can only have one, like uh, there's anorexia, there's bulimia, there's, you know, these, they're separate and everything. Like, did you want to dive more into that? Sure. Absolutely. The eating yeah. sort of life cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's also this, I think, I believe that there's this, kind of trend going around, especially on Instagram, social media. If if anybody is in the recovery community on Instagram, um, which a lot of us are, if -hmm. we're in recovery, we kind of get brought into this whole body positivity or or eating disorder recovery, you know, hashtag, hashtag no diet, I don't know, hashtag punish, not nourish, not punish, you know, all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a beautiful community in a lot of ways. And I'm thankful for it because I think it's really started to be a good place for people to go to see other body types and realize that like anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, none of it has a particular look. There's certain Mm -hmm. symptoms, but it doesn't have to look a certain way. Um, But I think that there's kind of a dangerous trend going on where people have this tendency to put up before pictures. So they like put up pictures of like what they look like when they were at the worst of their eating disorder and then pictures of themselves recovered. And something that I've never really liked about that, even though I think people should totally be open to being able to express themselves in their own recovery how they want. But the problem with that is that, again, those images end up being the kind of like marker that we put on whether or not an eating disorder looks a certain way. Right. So like something I put up recently was like the fact that when I was in the eating disorder life cycle, my body never looked the same way the whole time. And I think Mm -hmm. that happens for many people because when you're restricting, when you're purging, 
when you're binging and when you're over exercising, your body is trying to adapt to like the very unadaptable life like form yeah. that you're putting it into. And so for me, that meant that I was gaining and losing weight all throughout those years. Sometimes mm-hmm. I was, I looked a certain way. Sometimes I looked another way. I don't want to use numbers because I think using numbers is bullshit, totally. but, mm-hmm. but as you can imagine, my body changed quite a bit over, over eight years and really significantly in the last three years. And so I've put up pictures of that before to under, to show people that like when you're on the life cycle, anorexia, like I was predominantly diagnosed with anorexia because that was really where my mind was. You know, that was what I was obsessive about. That is what I focused on the most. But because I lived in anorexia for, let's say, weeks at a time, right? So I'd really be in this anorexic life cycle where I was like working out all the time, not eating, da-da-da-da-da. But then eventually you cave. Most people do. I mean, it's really hard to live like that and not eventually go crazy and end up start binge eating everything in your pantry. So then I would binge eat and then I would be like, well, you know, F it, like everything's to hell that I binge eat for like a week and hate myself. And like it was just this constant like going around the loop over and over. It's like a hamster on a wheel. Right. So I like to talk about that because I think that sometimes because we put up, you know, because of how the way social media is, we like to tell only one part of the story, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is like, oh, so I was anorexic and I look like this before. Now I'm recovered and I look like this now. And it's like most likely you probably didn't look like that the whole time. But because it has that kind of shock and awe, like feeling to it, I think that's the kind of stuff that gets a lot of engagement. It's, again, what the media picks up. Because I've noticed right. this even from my own world is that like, and I've, I've had to learn, you know, I've had, to, I've had to learn a lot from the media and understand like what they're looking for and had to, and, and understand what my recovery message is. Because in the beginning, I used to have to like send pictures of myself at my thinnest. That was always what editors wanted. Really? They yeah. always wanted pictures of when I looked the worst or when I looked the thinnest, never about the other side, just the thinnest. And I would send it and then that would end up being the headline on this like tabloid, you know, I can right. like, literally remember a specific one that was calling out my weight and calling and and when I was at my thinnest and talking about me being anorexic, yada, yada. And I just, I learned a lot from that because that wasn't the message that I'm trying to show yeah. or trying to get out there. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. What do you think about the whole body positivity, all of that that's going on on social media right now? I'm really careful to talk about that because the body positivity community is not something I feel like I can really insert myself into. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really happy that that community is existing and that people are advocating for it and that fat activism, um, I believe is what they call it, is is prevalent and is starting to become a thing where people feel like they have a community to base themselves around. Mm-hmm. I, I really have learned a lot over the, couple, over the last couple of years that that's not the space for me to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in a very, and I'm very aware of it. I live in a very privileged, white, thin, cisgender body. Right. And therefore I like to leave that space <laughs> for yeah. other people to come into. Um, and so I really try to focus my, especially on social media, talking about solely eating disorders and, and the statistics and research behind that. But yeah. body positivity, I do think is changing. I think slowly. It's going to mm-hmm. be a lot of time, but I think body body positivity activism has really, really started to help the industry and help the diet industry understand their own messaging. Yeah. And it's helped Barbie come out with like a real figured like yeah. Barbie doll. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's all from that. And yeah. I'm super happy to see that, but I don't feel like I can really, I don't, I don't, I just don't feel like it's right for me. Yeah, to no, that makes sense. And that's, 
Yeah. And that's great that you're able to like differentiate and know like where you can have the most impact and what your experience is. Yeah. And I don't want to, I think that there's this kind of feeling for a lot of, a lot of people that if, if we kind of take over that space, right. If we don't allow for other voices from other, from other types of bodies and like that to like have their, have their platform. Right. Um, because it, it is so prevalent that eating disorders are classified as like basically a Caucasian, like smaller That's bodied female. Good point. Yeah. Like yeah. Nicole Richie, Paris Hilton back in the right. day, that, that image. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I feel like if we start taking over that space and I think that's a lot of the backlash that, or the, you know, some of the criticism that comes from people like me who are talking about eating disorders is that body positivity is not necessarily about eating disorders. It's just about accepting bodies. Um, however they come disabled mm-hmm. bodies, et cetera. It's about like giving them their space to right. show up in the world. And so, yeah, I think that as recovery advocates, we have to be really careful about right. how, how we intersect those two things into that yeah that's a very good point I love that so I don't want to what's the word I'm looking for Mm, isolate a whole other audience of my podcast what's your experience with men with eating disorders because I feel like with media like you said it's women Mm -hmm. it's always women you know yeah what's your experience Um, with that men it's uh, it's interesting and it's something that I'm really trying to tap more into as well to like connect more with men that have eating disorders because Mm -hmm. I find that men have eating disorders, at least in my experience of the emails I receive and the men that have reached out to me talking about eating disorders, it's so much more fitness based. Um, Right. So, excuse me. Mm -hmm. So recently I had a man at the gym and he was this very cute, attractive, you know, young man. And I see him all the time. We're friendly and we always chit chat and say hello. He's in there a lot. So I started to have an idea. Um, Again, I don't like to like assume anything about anybody, but I saw him in there a lot. And he was always in there when I got there and in there when I left, which to me was, you know, you know, questionable or at least something to be aware of. And so one day we started, you know, chit chatting just in, in the gym, blah, blah, blah. And he asked me to go out for a coffee. And I, once I told him, you know, that I do this eating disorder work, et cetera. And so we went out for a coffee and this was just recently, a couple of weeks ago. And he was telling me about this. It's, it's this obsession with the gym. And yeah. he admitted it. He just like broke down and told me that he was like, I don't feel like I can exist. I can't go about my day if I don't work out. I don't, I feel guilty if I eat and I don't work out. And I was like, okay. Wow. And I was like, that's an eating disorder. And I think it was almost like he needed to hear that it was for him to understand that's what it was because men just yeah. do not talk about it. Um, and we, as a culture, do a really piss poor job <laughs> of giving them space to have eating disorders too. Totally. And I was, you know, and I was like, you're not, you know, because he was, he had this idea that eating disorders are like emaciated, again, emaciated, like white women and he mm-hmm. was like, and I, he was like, I obviously, he was like, I eat, I eat, I just like, I don't eat unless I go work out afterwards. And like, if I'm not taking my protein and like this and that. And so we talked about it for a long time. And that's, that's typically the kind of emails and reader mail that I get from men. And again, I don't get it nearly as much as women. I think men are a lot more hesitant to talk about eating disorders, Yeah. but um, especially for the LGBTQ plus community, eating disorders are the most prevalent uh, with transgender, with the transgender community. And so, 
yeah, yeah which makes I sense. See that. It makes sense. It. Yeah, they're trying to get the thin female-esque uh-huh. body and yep. yeah. And so there's a lot there too. So yeah, I think it's it's I think it's a lot more common in men than we give it credit for. And I think it often resonates in body, um, either body dysmorphic disorder where they're not seeing their muscles because they see all mm-hmm. these men who have these big bulging muscles like Spartacus or whatever Spart whatever that three thousand movie was. That yeah. Was, <laughs> what was it? Yeah. 300 I guess I don't know but um, yeah. I think that's what they're seeing and so they're getting this idea that, that their body should look that way yeah um, it's and so the same it's, for what we're seeing you know like what totally. we've seen with the thin white women they see the bulging like <laughs> perfectly defined and to be honest those those models like only look like that for like the day oh yeah totally <laughs> and there's a lot you know again it's the same thing as photoshop with women there's a lot yeah. of photoshopping with men i just don't think we talk about it with men as much exactly <laughs> and it's it's a disfortune to the, or it's a disservice to them right so you mentioned something uh body dysmorphia do you want to explain to people what that is totally so when i was in treatment i was diagnosed with uh I was diagnosed with anorexia predominantly, but I was also diagnosed with dis, uh, body dysmorphic disorder as well as OCD, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. made, a, made a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, but, but body dysmorphic disorder, it really, it comes in a lot of fashions. It's not just about body and it's not always completely correlated to eating disorders, which I, I always like to make clear. Um, for me, I had body dysmorphic disorder. It, it's always like, it's a preoccupation with like a certain body part. Um, like a preoccupation with a certain way that you think your body looks or mm. body part looks, but in re- in reality, you are not, you literally cannot see the reality that you don't look that way. Um, for a lot of people, it's their nose, uh, for quite a few other people, like uh, predominantly it's nose or it's, um, something with face, like whether they think they have acne or, you know, it's something that oh, it's becoming this very obsessive compulsive, uh, com- thinking that they can't get through life because of this nose or because of this or that. And for me, it was, I had an issue with my thighs, which Mm -hmm. really makes sense because I was already in an eating disorder, but I was really, I was preoccupied with my thighs to the point where by the time that I went to treatment, I, I, I I like wouldn't sit down between people on a bus. I like couldn't, and, you know, um, I was on a subway in New York because I lived in New York at the time. And I like I wouldn't sit down by people because I was too afraid that I was going to take up too much space and they weren't going to be able to sit down, you know, that they were going to have to move for me, et cetera. I just really wow. you kind of lose sight like you cannot see reality at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, one of the activities that they put me through through like treatment was that I would have to do this rope test where I would imagine what I thought my thighs look like with a oh. piece of string. Mm -hmm. And then they would actually like measure what my thighs were never telling me exactly the exact measurement, but it was very interesting because in my head I had my thighs about three times larger than Mm -hmm. what they were. And so that's kind of the preoccupation that goes in. And it's like an all encompassing, all encompassing preoccupation of like, you can't stop thinking about that one body part. You can't stop thinking that it's changing in front of Mm -hmm. you. Like you literally see it in the mirror and think that it's changing. Like I would, I would actually physically feel like my thighs were changing after I ate a meal or that this or that. And so that was, that's kind of life with body dysmorphic disorder. It's, it sucks. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it just goes to show how strong the mind is. Cause that's mm-hmm. what it is. It's, you get so in your head and like believe something so much and you can start to physically see it. 
yeah which is crazy I know I think if I think when you think about something so repetitively and so compulsively um right. it does start to change your brain right? Right. I think it starts to change the way that you see it because I certainly don't see that now I still mm-hmm. struggle obviously sometimes with like body image because who doesn't but yeah and it's part of recovery <laughs> like mm-hmm. but I generally don't know how I like it seems almost interesting like it seems like almost unbelievable that I'm even saying it because I can't remember feeling that so real you know like I almost Mm -hmm. feel like I'm like reading like I'm telling you this as though it happened but I can't remember that it happened but I know it did because I like read my diaries and read like and I remember like doing stuff like that but it's yeah it's definitely really interesting um yeah I wouldn't (laughs) wouldn't wish it on anybody yeah yeah um and then you also talked about you mentioned orthorexia which is Fairly, I guess it's, it's a yeah, fairly new. I think mm. I was reading something about it, and it's within like the last like nine or so years that it started becoming or started being talked about, and technically still isn't a DSM five eating disorder yet. I think. Um, but do you want to touch more on that because I feel like in our culture, especially living in places like LA, it's very mm. prevalent, and people don't realize that that's a form. Boulder I mean, too. Really? Boulder, Boulder is all about the uh, clean eating. Um, yeah, the clean eating wellness like mm-hmm. hubs of America. It's pretty, it's prevalent to be able to. Yes. Um. So orthorexia. It's interesting because it's such a fine line of like, of like explaining it because I don't want to do a disservice to people who just generally enjoy eating well. Um. But, I, it's an obsession with clean eating, to the mm-hmm. point to the point where you can't really like function in your life. Um, yeah, where it causes you distress. Yeah. Right, where it causes you little distress to like go out to eat. It causes you distress to go to the store. Like for me, the way that orthorexia kind of manifested is that I had this intense anxiety around certain foods because of pesticides or I had this intense oh. anxiety around um, eating, going out to eat because I didn't know what was in the food, you know, what was in the pan that they cooked it in. Like what oils did they use or this or that. And I got really, I was really like obsessive about like how much of this food I would eat because it had this much sugar in it or this much carbs in it. And that I had read that this had a lower glycemic index. It's like that incredible preoccupation with every, every kind of thing that's, that's put into food. And, you know, it's interesting because like, I still, I live with a partner and I, my last, my ex before my current partner are both very much in the, like the wanting to recultivate food from the ground and like have real food and not, and not, you know, be dependent on things like Monsanto and like, and that kind of like general food dynamic. So it's a really interesting line for me to cross because I, I actually agree that I I don't like the way that a lot of our food is distributed and the way that our food is in America. But at the same time, I'm also very aware that like you can eat food and be a healthy person. It's not going to kill you. We, I, I think the media has this like very salacious way of putting out these research articles, right? And not mm-hmm. that they're not 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 that they don't have truth to them, but when all we're when all we're doing is researching the same thing over and over, you're gonna find whatever you it is you're looking for. Right. <laughs> There's going to be something out there that's tell that that reconfirms your like clean eating fear that like oh I can't have this like x food because of x this or it's going to give me cancer or it's going to do this and so clean eating to me is just it's that obsessiveness about never being able to eat a food without knowing where it came from or knowing how it got there or knowing what's in it or you know how many calories is it or does it where does it fall on the glycemic index or this or that and I think that that's 
mostly for people that are like body tra- body or fitness trainers. Mm-hmm. I think that that occurs pretty prevalently in that community because they're right. always reading about how to build their bodies and muscles and this and that. And I think it starts being a little bit of an issue more often there. But right. yeah, it's I, that's that's my view of orthorexia is just mm-hmm. this like inability to just live your life and go out <laughs> to eat and like not feel guilty about it or not feel like you're going to die because you didn't, you know, you ate this food or this or that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting you said that about the fitness community and stuff, because it also is worth touching upon that these fad diets, and I say fad, yeah, I say fad, fad diets that are out there can be a way to mask your issues in the sense of like keto being a big thing right now. Um, there's one thing of doing keto because you want to be healthier or it works optimally for your body. There's another of being very fearful of carbs or mm-hmm. something like that. And also, I think my feeling of it always, and again, I'm not a nutritionist, but my feeling is that if your body wasn't made to do that, you know, and unless you were born, you know, obviously there's a lot of people like I have friends that have celiac and Mm -hmm. they, they clearly that that's different. Yeah. (laughs) Their bodies (laughs) literally reject certain things, but we didn't evolve to be the people that we are now to sit around and eating butter sticks and coffee. I mean, like everyone is free to do as they need, but I think those kind of fad diets don't last. That's my personal opinion. First of all, I think when you restrict yourself from having anything, it's unsustainable. Mm -hmm. We don't really live in a culture where you can do that very easily. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. And we just don't, I don't think that our bodies are actually happy doing that. I don't, especially with something extreme like keto. keto. Um, I think it's an extreme diet. And mm-hmm. I think it can make you feel really good, but you can crash really hard on it from what I hear as well. So right. if you get off of the keto, once you get that kind of high, I hear that you can get with like the keto diet. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I had a friend that did it cause he was a long distance runner. And by long distance, I mean like 24 hour long oh, trail wow. running. And I worried about him, you know, but I also, I also know that people are going to do what they want to do. But I remember right. thinking like, I don't know how this is sustainable for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you travel? How do you go out? Cause we, he came out to camp with us one weekend and I just remember like watching him and I was like, it was, unsust- I mean, he, he was like barely eating the whole time cause he, he couldn't, he had to bring all of his own food and it was all yeah. together and he didn't have enough of it. Like, you know, it was just like oh, wow. this, this feeling, but he didn't want to get off of it because he was worried about crashing. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't know, to me, my personal, and again, people do as they do, but my personal feeling is like, how is that sustainable for the long term? And yeah. if you do crash, is it, I mean, are you going to end up binge eating, I think is what I often go to. But that's for people also that have really suffer with eating disorders. I don't think they should touch diets like that because I think that just, it immediately plays back into this restrictive diet, my dietary mindset, which means that you feel like you're not giving yourself something, which in turn means that you're denying, 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 and then bam, you're back on the other side of it, binge eating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was definitely part of my recovery to get to the point where I was like, all right, enough with all these diets. Cause I mean, yeah. even, yeah, even sort of recently I was trying out the keto thing and I was just like, this is just not, not healthy, not healthy mentally, physically, but mentally mostly. Yeah. For I me. Think, well, I feel like too, and this is my experience over the four and a half years I've been in recovery. It's like, it's going to take a long time, right? In recovery to like mm-hmm. figure out how, wh- what foods work for you. And we're going to screw it up a lot. And I've certainly screwed it up a lot, 
But the thing that I noticed is, like, I just got back from New York, and I was there for 10 days, and so I was kind of really off my schedule, right? I was, like, running around. I was, like, seeing all my friends, going out to eat every night. Like, I was at this conference. So I was not really getting to choose my own food, which gives me high anxiety still. I hate not being able to, like, choose my own food. But um, what I noticed is, like, after, like, a few days of that, I really started to feel shitty, like... And I was like, oh, my God, like, I don't feel well. I just want X. Like, I want something that I had, you know, something that is, like, normal to me that I eat at home. Yeah. And and I think that you do figure – it just takes a long time. But our bodies, like, figure out what makes us feel good. We If we start listening to ourselves more, then it's okay to have whatever dessert it is and then still, like, still eat the way you want. I don't know. I just wish that was pushed more. Yeah, because you do figure it out. It does take a long time, though, in my opinion, because it's taken me four and a half years to get to a point where I know what I like, what, you know, I know what feels comfortable to eat and I know what I like to eat and I'm able to like go out to eat, eat whatever I want to eat and then know like, okay, so I ate it tonight, I ate this tonight and maybe that's not going to, that's not like the best thing for my body, but I wanted it. Yeah, And I exactly. didn't deny it. <laughs> and yeah. tomorrow, I'll it's, choose it's a process. Oh, sorry. What was that? No, it was just like, and tomorrow I'll choose differently. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's just a process of realizing that if you're making a decision based on health and like your choice or your personal preferences or out of fear. Totally. It's also like, have, I think that we get, you know, we get really scared that our bodies aren't going to be able to adapt to eating normally after we, what we've put them through or after like how we've been to them. And I think that there's like a really big beauty that a lot of people, it takes a long time to get to where you can actually trust that your body's not going to freak the F out yeah. when you start to eat more normally and not even normal. Cause what is normal? Nobody eats normally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, but like when you start to eat, like as you wish, you know, like if you're craving that piece of chocolate and you eat it, your body's not going to go like, I don't know what to do with it. Like, yeah. And I, but I think that that's a mindset that takes a lot of unlearning from an eating disorder to relearn how to feel that way. Right. Totally. So we've definitely talked about a lot of a lot of recovery and what it's like to be in it. What are your biggest tools that have helped you along the process of actually making a change and getting better? Writing was huge for me. Um, That's so I think I think really just like not living in this perpetual sense of manipulation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's I think it takes a long time. I don't think, you know, I always say like treatment, all treatment did was give me a base to start off on. Cause mm-hmm. I think sometimes people feel like treatment's going to like fix them. Right. But I don't think treatment fixes you. I think treatment just literally gives you the building blocks to start building. Like that's mm-hmm. it. Like, and that was a shock for me when I got out and started still was having eating disorder behaviors, still was having those thoughts, you know, et cetera. I was trying to recover, yet I was still, like, one foot in the eating disorder, and I couldn't figure out how to, like, take ownership over my own life and over my own, like, over my own choices and being, like, okay, this isn't going to all fix itself in a month or in mm-hmm. two months or even three months or four months. This yeah. is a flexible thing because you don't spend eight years literally dedicating your whole life, right, to the eating disorder train. Right. I, I didn't I didn't have hobbies by the time I went to rehab. All I did was eating disorder stuff. I either worked <laughs> out for an eating disorder, <laughs> not yeah. for my own joy. I worked yeah. out for an eating disorder. I restricted and I counted calories. That was about it. Did. So I lost I lost the kind of years that you build hobbies and build like ta- yeah. you know other other things. I just didn't really have them. And so what you know when you're first getting out, there's like an, an 
deep sense of like, who am I now without this? And that's terrifying. And I think it's why a lot of people end up going back mm-hmm. is because they don't really know how the hell to like get on in the world. I certainly didn't mm-hmm. for a long time. And so I think it's just taking, it's repositioning. For me, it was like repositioning recovery to feel like, okay, I'm going to try every day to continue to recover. Also knowing that it's going to take a long ass time to unlearn what I've chosen to learn and what I've chosen to like dedicate my entire life to. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was really starting to write about it. Um, It was starting to connect with people. It was starting to be like viciously open about it. um, Transparent about what I was going through because I remember in the first few months, especially it's like I was calling my best friends. I was calling my parents. I was calling my therapist and having like little breakdowns pretty daily like mm-hmm. pretty much I was just like I hate how I look you know I just didn't even want to go outside there were days I like just didn't even want to get out of bed because I was so it wasn't that I was in my eating disorder I was exhausted by recovery <laughs> like right. I was just yeah. like I was literally exhausted by mm-hmm. like doing it and I think that's all normal and I wish people talked about that you know and I, I think that it was helpful when I started to connect with other people who were like real and authentic about like how difficult the process is Mm-hmm. And when I started to read books about it, when I started to read other people's experiences about it, honestly, the Instagram community at the time was really great um, yeah. to like read other people that were going through what I had gone through. I think that, I mean, I, really connection is the only reason people can really ever recover from anything, right? Is to have right. this like really to have this feeling that you're not alone and that what you're thinking isn't original. <laughs> exactly. And that what you're thinking has been thought before and has been done before and watching other people like get on with their lives and mm-hmm. how tricky it is. But yeah, so I'd say connection and writing were huge. Uh, and trying to find hobbies was huge. Um, okay. It took a long time. A lot of insecurity right. there too. Cause when you're like, cause for me, I was 24 and there was a lot of insecurity about like not feeling like I knew how to cook, mm-hmm. not feeling like I knew how to like exist. Um, and so I guess really discomfort. That's a good one. That's what I mean. Putting yourself in situations where you're going to be uncomfortable daily and letting it be and feeling it and just sitting with it because you're going to have to do it a hell of a lot. Yeah. And, like yeah. And for me, that was like going to a cooking class, you know, that was like, learning how to do different types of exercise rather than running. Cause running was all that I had ever done. Right. Like learning how to date again, learning how to, I mean, just pick up like playing the piano again, like everything mm-hmm. that I had given up and starting to like touch on, you've got to fill up your void. Cause you're going to have this huge void, right? Like I'm sure right. as you sort of experience this like void of like, what do you do now that I don't have this? Yeah. You kind of lose like part of, it feels like, it feels like you're losing part of your identity. Oh, totally. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah totally. And yeah. so I, it's having that plan of like, you have to accept that you're going to be uncomfortable and accept that you're willing to be uncomfortable to see what happens on the other side. Mm-hmm. And so that was huge. That was huge for me. Um, so yeah, a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, even people that feel like they aren't like to the point where they need to get into rehab or something like it's just worth it's always worth talking to someone and like I I believe 100% in a therapy setting so with a therapist about what you're feeling and what you're thinking because it's really easy to think that what you're feeling is normal or just abnormal but you're you don't like you don't know how like what it is 
And until you have like a professional to talk to about it, um, it just causes you distress and you don't deserve that distress. No one does. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Therapy. If you, if you can afford that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, support groups were huge for me in the beginning. I went to OA quite a bit and that's free. Yeah. I've I've still never never been there, but I've heard, I've heard great things. So that's what she's talking about is overeaters anonymous. But what I've heard is that that's not just for overeaters. It's for disordered eating in general. Totally. Yeah. It's for all. Um, Yeah. I will say you got to be careful, like not careful, but be cognizant because there are some groups that are pretty much dedicated to binge eating. Okay. Um, because they look at it as like sugar addiction. Okay. Um, Interesting. Which, which I believe is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. But you just have, I think people that are struggling predominantly with like anorexia, bulimia, uh, need to be careful (laughs) because if they end up in a group like that, um, that can be triggering as hell. Yeah. I mean, life's triggering, but why put yourself in triggering positions at the beginning, like where they're talking about sugar content and stuff like that. Um, and that I I have, I did end up in a couple meetings like that where I was like, I don't think this is actually good for me to be in here because I was like getting really anxious about it. Right. Right. Um, and I think what you said about finding people online that you resonate or not resonate with, but just people that talk about their experiences for me, that was super helpful. And so like the type of writing that you do is just so valuable to people that are not sure how to go about their recovery or how to get help. And it just helps you realize that you're not alone out there. Oh, yeah. It's actually, it's interesting. I I don't forget who told me this or who brought this idea to me, but like, I mean, eating disorder is an, an addiction. So with other addictions, you have alcoholics. They can, you know, if they, it's hard. Like, I am not discrediting other addictions. They suck. They're hard. Um, I'm, I personally don't have experience with it, but I imagine they're really hard. But in reality, you can be like, okay, I'm going to stop drinking. I can, I'm going to stop doing drugs. But you can't stop eating. And that's right. the addiction part of the eating disorder. And that's what makes it so goddamn hard. Yeah. You can't just stop eating. You can't stop what you're addicted to. Um, it's my, such a mind fuck. No, oh my God, always. I don't know, always. And when you're having a bad day, it's still a mind fuck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It like doesn't stop being a mind fuck, which is I wish people would just call out more often. You know, it's like you can be in recovery for 10 fucking years and still go through it, in my opinion. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. What I'm learning about myself. Yeah, that was great. That was good. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, wait, I was going to say one, I had one other thought. What was it? Oh my God. Sorry. It just like left my brain. Hold on. Oh, oh yeah. Um, I think also what kept me thriving or what's kept me like putting one foot in front of the other with recovery, which is sometimes a controversial thought pattern, but I look at my life a lot. You know how people are always like no regrets, like don't have any regrets in your life. Uh-huh. I kind of, I don't apply that to my own life. Like, I don't feel that way. I do have regrets. Um, I don't wallow in them. I've accepted that they happen. But mm-hmm. I really hate that I missed eight years of my life. Like, yeah. I hate that I wasn't, I didn't show up for eight years of my life. Um, And, like, I didn't show yeah. up to bat for my own self. I, like, totally let other people, like, dictate how I felt about my life. I totally let my eating disorder kind of dictate what kind of mood I was in or, or, or whatnot. And to me... One of the things I did while I was in treatment that I still continue to do this day when I'm really going through a period where I feel like I might be taking a step back is I go through what my recovery goals were 
And the thing is, is like your recovery goals are going to change because you have no idea who the hell you're going to be or who you're going to evolve to after you like get a, like start the whole recovery thing, right? But I really I write down a lot of times like the shit that I missed in my life that I will never get back. Mm-hmm. And you know, for me it was the for me it was stuff like my best friend died when I was 18. And instead of spending the last time I ever saw him with him, I left to go to the gym and I never saw, and I, you know, I I hugged him goodbye the next day and I never saw him again. And I keep that memory with me a lot because I missed it. And I, I do regret that. And I, I, I don't wallow in it. I don't hate myself for it. Mm -hmm. I'm not angry at myself for it. It's, it is what it is. There's no changing it. But, you know, I think about Spain, like you and I were talking about how we both lived overseas. Mm-hmm. I spent the whole year, you know, I thought I would like move overseas and it would change me. Um, of course, you can move all you want. It's not going to change you. Yeah. But I went over there like thinking I'd find this new life. And instead, all I found was like the gym 50 feet away mm-hmm. that I spent like a pretty predominant amount of time on. Yeah. The instead of traveling, instead of taking those weekend trips to Barcelona, instead of going out and like living my life, I couldn't do it. And I often, I don't, I don't know. I, I, and again, some people disagree with me on this, but I write that down whenever I need the reminder that I'm going to be 30 years old this year. This is it. This is all I got. This is the only life I have. One life. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is it. This is it. And whether or not it's been perfect or not, it's not going to be. And like, I want to live it while I have it because I don't know where I don't know what's going to happen after this. Exactly. Maybe I'll yeah. be reincarnated. Maybe I won't. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I want to live my life while I'm in it. Yeah. And I want to feel my life while I'm in it. And that thought process alone has kept me in recovery a lot more than I think people might think it will. Yeah. When you write, when you really like touch base with what you've missed and mm-hmm. what you want out of it, and and how and understanding that's going to change a lot. But I think it's an important one to keep in, to stay in, an important one to keep reminding yourself because it's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day. Right, to remind yourself that you deserve happiness and a better life and to live your life to the fullest and not, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that when you're 90, that whole 90-year-old perspective, right? But it's like, And you don't regret things. and Yeah, when, when you're like 80 years old like or 90 or whatever and you're sitting there and you're in a nursing home or wherever you are, it's like, are you really going to think about your life about those like five or 10 pounds, you know, like, or kind of weight? like, is that really what you're going to be focusing on? And I mean, I guess it will be if that's all you've dedicated your life to, but what a waste. Yeah. It can be so much more fulfilling and beautiful. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I actually, and then you brought up, you brought up the Spain part and that's how I definitely didn't take my recovery seriously until after I lived in Spain and I came home and I went to a rehab out here and I spent my time. I actually, that's so funny that you say that. And I've never considered it that way that you just said that because I didn't experience Spain the way that I could have. I was like so obsessed about what I was eating and finding these like healthy stores and like stay instead of spending the day going into the city, I would like stay at the house and like work out in the basement. (laughs) Like, cool could do that anywhere and I know that's how I felt too it's like I like literally was at this like rusty like dirty ass like Spanish gym every day yeah. like they knew me by name like they literally like oh. knew me so well and I just think about like how 
precious that time period was and how, you know, right. I'll never have that back again. Like, yeah. I'm, I, I mean, I love my partner and I love where we live and I love my life. I have a dog and, and I love it, but I'm never going to be that free again in, the, in right. that same 23 year old sense. Like, right. and I was so free to do whatever the hell I wanted to do. And I spent it that way. And I'm just like, oh, what a waste. Like, yeah. I would have rather had other memories. And so I would like to dedicate my 30s and the, and the re- remaining time in my life to making that kind of memory and feeling like I'm a free individual. Exactly. Yeah, that's beautiful. And something that I hope resonates or is like a bit of a enlightenment to some people listening. Uh, because you deserve to, you deserve happiness and you deserve to choose yourself. And that includes mental sanity, health, all of that. Yeah. Totally. Agreed. Um, cool. So given (laughs) this kind of like is a good segue into my next question. (laughs) Um, so what kind of advice would you give your younger self? Yeah. So yeah. (laughs) Kind of just kind of touched on that, but no, I I appreciate, I always appreciate that question. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was thinking about it earlier before we got on the podcast because it always changes, you know, like I get asked that question every so often. It's like sometimes it just kind of changes, like based on my mental state that day. <laughs> yeah. Fair like, and uh, today I uh, one thing I was thinking about before we got on this is, again, yeah, of course, what we just touched upon, the fact that I wish I could go back and be like, hey, you're only young this once. Like, mm-hmm. that's it. Like, yeah. And teenage years are rough. Like, they're hard. And you're, like, so... It's, like, such an emotional time period. You have all your, like, first loves and your first heartache and all this rejection happens. And, like, it's, like, a crappy time yeah. in a lot of ways. But it's also, like, the most free that you have. Like, you're not an adult. You know, in a lot of ways, a lot of people don't have to completely be, like, thinking about family or, like, having kids yet and all that kind right. of stuff. All that, you know, starting their careers, figuring out what they want to do with their careers. It's more that kind of idealistic, like, time period of trying to figure out who you want to be and how you want to show up in this world. And mm-hmm. I wish that I could have just taken a step back and been, like, hey, you're only young this one time. Like, enjoy it. You can, sh- you'll, like, it will work out. Like, right. and your life will not be perfect. And you will, like, shit will happen. You'll get fired from your first job because you had an eating disorder and you weren't a good employee. And mm-hmm. I've had, you know, you're going to have regrets and, like, you're going to have things that, like, happen that suck. But, like, I spent so much of, like, my, especially early 20s and my teens, like, worrying about who I was going to be. Mm-hmm. And, like, how I was going to show up. And I wish I could, you know, I, I would totally go back and say that to myself. Um, I wish I could give her, like, a mirror to show her, like, to, like, see through and be like, you're going to end up okay. Right. Life will be okay. You'll yeah. handle it. And um, I also wish that if I could go back to my younger self, I would have focused more on my own self instead of always trying to fix other people. Oh, interesting. I had a huge tendency now that I... You know, I, I had a lot of diaries. I've always been a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those diaries have actually been incredibly helpful in, in recovery now because I read, you know, just kind of my thought process as a like as an 18 year old or 20 year old. And, you know, sometimes I think we, we have a tendency to kind of forget who we were then. We mm-hmm. only see ourselves as who we are now that we were always that way. <laughs> like, yeah. Or that, you know, maybe that. Yeah, I don't know. And so reading my thoughts at 18, 20, 22 I do see that major fundamental issue that I had back then was that I spent a lot of my time obsessing and worrying about other people. And I think it was because helping other people, like 
fixing other people. Like I always dated people that had like alcohol problems. You know, I had this tendency to date the guy at the party or the, you know, the person at the party that was the most fun, but maybe the most self-destructive. It was like something about some self-destruction always drew me to them because I think I had it in myself. So I recognized that pattern in someone else. And I wanted to help that other person because I did not know how to help myself. And by helping other people, I very much got into this pattern of like getting validation from other people. So I spent a lot of my like 20s wanting to feel validated through other people, like only feeling like my worth was as much as the next the person that I met that if they liked me or not. And I still struggle with that. I think it's a lifetime struggle in a lot of ways. (laughs) But I'm aware of that pattern. And I wish I had been aware, more aware of why I was doing it then. Right. Right. Oh, that was a big one because I think I would have had more brain time to actually think about my own issues and maybe have like been a little bit more active and vocal about getting help for them then. Yeah, that's a good point. The self finding validation through other people and even just the idea of like trying to fix other people Mm -hmm. is very prevalent and something people usually aren't aware that they're doing. Right. Yeah. And they're not aware. It's just like it becomes like kind of a life pattern. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then one other thing I had that I was like, when I was thinking about it, when you asked that question in your email, uh, the other thing I was thinking about is the idea of like, stop waiting for your life to fix you. Cause Mm -hmm. I moved around a ton in my early twenties and I kept thinking that the next place that I went to would be the place that would just change it for me. I know that one. Yeah. Right. And it's this feeling of like, constantly waiting for something else to change me and never wanting to take proactiveness in my own life yeah and that that I think was a detriment for a long time and I think about the shit that I could have done if Mm -hmm. I had taken ownership of my own life and that even comes down to like my parents you know like I love my parents dearly but I spent a lot of my early 20s being terrified of how they would how they would be if I told them I had an eating disorder or how they would react if I told them that I was, you know, like bisexual, because I am, I'm bisexual, I identify as bisexual. Like, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time stressing over that and not wanting to be, not letting myself grow as a person because of that kind of fear. The fear and, holding you back, yeah. Oh, hell yeah, of course. Yeah. And I think that, again, it comes down to like, you only have one life, so you got to start owning your shit. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. That's 100% true. So those are my three. <laughs> cool. I love it. Uh, and then last question, what do you hustle for? Um, I, yeah, I like that question too. It's a good question. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, I hustle for adventure and connection, I oh, think. I, like, I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. I hustle for this feeling of being alive and feeling yeah. like I'm actually living my life, whether it's being in a van, like whether it's like, whether it's traveling with my partner, whether it's really just being at home with my partner, like, or whether it's connecting with other women or other men through the eating disorder community, whether it's speaking, like, I really like, I hustle for like almost, I hustle for discomfort. If that's no, <laughs> like, that, that I, <laughs> I love being uncomfortable in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. I hate it too. And it's exhausting, but like, but I hustle for it. Because it's what keeps me putting one foot in front of the other and sending that next email and connecting with that next person 
and speaking at that next event and writing that next article that feels true to me and true to my experience and hopefully relates and provides connection for me to the next person. It's kind of how I view life, right? I don't really think a lot matters in life other than like how you show up and like who you meet in this world and like how you want to, you know, how you want to leave your little ripple in the pond. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I think what you said about connection is really, really key. That feeling or I mean, after, after being so consumed with your eating disorder, it's kind of like almost like you're kind of dead in a sense. Oh, yeah. And then having those feelings of awe when you're traveling and you're seeing a beautiful place or you're meeting people from different backgrounds and unique walks of life that you connect with deeply. Like those are the feelings and the moments that are worth living for in life. Yeah. And they're just yeah. like, all that really ends up mattering. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> like exactly. how much money you have, all that shit doesn't like, none of it will actually mean anything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's inter- I'm going to, I keep throwing out all these like random things I heard <laughs> again. Another one is, is like, um, no one's going to stand up at your funeral and say, Oh, he, had a really he had really cool clothes or he yeah. had um a really cool job they're gonna be like talking about what kind of person you were what kind of impact really. you had and the connections you had and, and how you made people feel exactly yeah so I yeah. really feel like that's like actually mostly what people how people will like fossilize you exactly <laughs> like how you made them feel and then in turn that's how they'll quote you that's how they'll talk about you and even then you know we're only on this planet for so long and the people that knew us are only on this planet for so long yeah yeah, exactly. Well, cool. That was an awesome interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Can you give people some information on how they can find you and follow along? Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, so if anyone wants to read my blog or subscribe, uh, please go to www.ihaventshavedinsixweeks.com. No apostrophe, just all one word. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can find me on Instagram. I write a lot on Instagram. Uh, my handle is Lindsay Hall Writes. Um, I have a Facebook, I have a personal page that I am very open to all friend requests. Um, and it's under Lindsay Hall writes. And then I have an, I haven't shaved in six weeks blog, uh, Facebook page, which I hardly update just to be honest. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and I don't really use Twitter, so (laughs) I've stopped giving out that. (laughs) And I'll link all of that in the show notes, everything. So everyone can find you. Uh, I just want to say one last thing I saw because I mean I stalk everyone that comes on my show I saw that you that you plan to live in the and live in a van yes (laughs) that is my goal for well I'm turning 30 this year so I'm really hoping that that happens in my 30th year if it doesn't I'll manage but yeah um, what I want to do van life is huge especially in Colorado yeah and it's something I've been really really interested in for the past couple years and so I've really started putting together like how would I make this work and also be able to kind of put it alongside this whole recovery life that I have and so I want to start a recovery on the road series where I convert a van um or I buy a van and it's already maybe half converted and I end up converting the rest and I want to go around not full time I've decided because I don't want to leave my partner for like months at a time Uh, but I definitely want to go on like these little week or two trips where I end up like visiting one or two or three states at a time, kind of going in, meeting with women that live in those states, maybe meeting with other like recovery influencers online, starting to talk with them um, about their stories, doing, looking at, especially looking at what mental health resources are available for those people in their states, Mm -hmm. um, where their states rank, how their states are doing in the sense of like, do they have 
nonprofits that provide some free support groups? Do they have this or that? Just kind of going right. and really getting like a really deep dive look into what treatment is like in America and what kind of, you know, holistic treatment. And then there's corporate treatment and then there's small for like individualized treatment. Then there's, group yeah. treatment. there's all these different ways. And I get a lot of emails of people asking me about what I think are the best treatment options. And for me, I think it's every person's, you know, individual, but I really want to have more of a sense of a grasp of like what treatment centers in America in this day and age are offering. Right. Interesting. That's so cool. Yeah, uh, I hope so. That would be such a, the epitome of combining adventure and your passion. Yeah, so exactly. Cool. Yeah. yeah, and I want to be able to, obviously, there's, of course, the adventure aspect of it. Yeah. I just want to be able to be on the road and kind of go from place to place and live a little bit more nomadically, live a little bit more with less shit, because I don't, I have way too much shit, and I always, yeah. and, and I know it, and so it'd be kind of nice to minimalize for a bit and see how that affects my recovery, kind of see what that's yeah, like. Just- yeah. yeah, so basically putting myself in discomfort to see what happens. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. This has been an awesome talk, and I hope people, uh, I don't know, feel inspired if they need to be, if they need that. And, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. You're awesome. Of course. Thanks. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. As always, I do this for you, and I really appreciate that you guys listen and you enjoy it. So if you want to, you can follow me on Instagram. My handle is at wanderwithkirsty, W-A-N-D-E-R, with K-I-R-S-T-I-E. Also, if you really, really love me, you can rate me on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you listen to this on. Until next week, keep hustling for yourselves. Keep loving yourselves. You really do deserve it.